And so this morning I'd like to point your attention to John chapter 4 starting in verse 19. Uh, If you would please for the reading of God's word please stand. I would remind you what we find here is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. And so we gladly bow to its authority this morning. John 4 verse 19 says this, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you were a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word this morning. Lord, we're grateful that you have given us a prescribed means of entering into the throne room of grace. And Lord, as we come, my prayer is that we would find ourselves delighted to submit to your authority. Lord, that as you have prescribed a means by which we should come to worship, may we simply find ourselves overwhelmed and overjoyed that you have given us entry at all. And as we come and we bow to the authority of your word, Lord, may it be that the saint be edified, Lord, that they are encouraged in their faith, that they may be strengthened to walk more faithfully before you. And if there be any here, Lord, who does not know you, may you by your grace show them that there is is means of entry, there is means of worship. But Lord, that means of entry is only through the person of Christ. It is in the name of Jesus and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon in a sentence this morning, I kind of want to break down the first phrase here. Um, the sermon in a sentence is this. If we desire to worship God rightly, we must worship in spirit and in truth. Now the first phrase there is the one that's really important that we kind of break apart rather quickly. Um, the first phrase is, if we desire to worship God rightly. Let me go ahead and explain to you what it means to worship God rightly. It means that the intention in worship is to come the way that God has prescribed with the intention of exalting Christ is ultimately to ascribe to him the value that he is due. I want you to understand that worship is not an opportunity for you to come and lift the throne of God higher. Friends, he is immutable. There is nothing that we add to him in worship. Instead, worship is a means by which we respond to the revelation that God has given in his word. Would you consider for a minute uh, what it would be like should God live off the praises of his people? And and the reason I bring this up is because I am convinced that the vast majority of, of, of Christians in our culture actually think that when they go in to worship the Father, they are actually exalting him to a higher plane. They are giving him something that he is in need of. Friends, God is not in need of worship. He is he knows nothing of need. It does not matter should we bring praises to him or should we not. If we are silent the rocks will cry out. Worship is not something that adds something to his value. It is a response to the revealed value of God. And so when we come to this and we say, if we desire to worship God rightly, I'm making a a, a premise here that's very important for us to understand. The premise is this, that all those here this morning long to worship God rightly. I would encourage you as we continue in um, in this text that we would examine ourselves and ask the question, do we actually desire to worship God rightly or are we here to perhaps um, give exalt one who is actually that we can contribute or add something to him or secondly that we come to worship the Lord because it does something for us 
Now let me explain this to you really quickly. First and foremost, worship is a great gift from God to the saint. One of the reasons the Lord constantly reminds us in the scriptures that we should be meeting together with other believers is because one of the greatest joys of life here below is to worship with the saints of God. To come together, to sing loudly the praises of Christ, to hear your brothers and sisters in Christ singing with you. It's a privilege, it's an honor. It prepares us for eternity. For there, there will be much singing and making much of Christ constantly. But it's important to note that when we come to worship on a Sunday morning, our intention is not for us to come so that um, we might, as Adrian Rogers called it, have a liver quiver. That's a weird terminology, but Adrian Rogers is a genius and I have to steal it. Ultimately, to come get some emotional response or to have some feeling within us that we might walk away and have some type of emotional response, a catharsis, so to say, that you might come and maybe um, the Lord would purge you of some emotions. That is not the intent of worship. The intent of worship is to respond to the revelation that God has granted us through his word. So um, let us then uh, dive into the text with that in mind. So if we desire to worship God rightly, we must worship in spirit and in truth. So um, let me go back really quickly in verse 19 and 20 and clarify some things. So if you, read, if you look at verse 19 and 20, it says this, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you were a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place we ought to worship. Um, last week I mentioned to you that there is some, uh, there are some really, real frustrations between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. I would like to develop the religious background a little bit more this morning. So first off, the background of the Samaritan people is they had a location of worship and they majored on the location of worship. They were convinced that should you worship in the right location, ultimately your worship would be acceptable to the Lord. Now, the major issue with this is they had a faulty instruction in worship. Consider for a minute how you, what conclusions you would come to should you not have the complete revelation of God. The Samaritan people rejected everything after the first five books of the Bible. It is an incredible amount of Old Testament revelation that they rejected altogether. And so because of that, they had faulty understandings of what worship is. Secondly, they had faulty understanding even of the location where worship was to be conducted. They had this internal debate between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were saying on this mountain, on Mount Gerizim, is where we're to worship. That's where the blessings of obedience have been read. She even makes the point that our fathers worshipped here, friends. Abraham worshipped here. Abraham worshipped here. Jacob worshipped here. Joseph's bones were here. It was a place of great religious significance, but ultimately it is not a matter of location at all. And so the background is this. They have this strong emphasis on a location of worship and their instruction of worship is absolutely corrupted altogether. Friends, forgive me for being a little bit um, blunt perhaps, but as you look at one particular sect of the Christian faith, and I do call it a sect, it is the Catholic faith. They practice something known as synchronization. They would never profess this, but ultimately they have taken Christian themes and adopted pagan concepts into the Christian faith. That's exactly what's taking place in Samaria. They have these, Christ, they have these uh, Judean themes that they've placed in their worship, but they have taken all of these other world religions and kind of smashed them into their religious practice. And so ultimately what you have is a corrupted form of Judaism. It, it serves no purpose at all. They've corrupted it altogether. And so they argue that, there is, that the location is incredibly important and the way that we worship is important, but it's different than that of the Jews. And so let's look at verses, um, verses 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. So the very first thing that Jesus does in every single one of the major points of this particular passage is he shatters some worldview. 
For instance, if you look at the first, con- the first statement that he makes with the Samaritan woman, he looks at water and he says, this well is actually not providing what's necessary for you. I mean, this well that she goes to day in and day out, that her, it, it is the source by which she lives. Should this well run dry, all of a sudden she has no water. And Jesus looks at her and he says, this well is not providing what you actually need. Sure, it gives you some type of of, of daily provision, but ultimately you're going to find yourself coming back to it time and time and time again. Or even after this this statement, we find that Jesus looks at his disciples and says, the bread that you're eating, the food that you're making reference to, I have a better food. He looks at the substance and says, says, this is not actually what you need. In the exact same way, Jesus looks at this place and he says there is coming an hour where everything is going to fundamentally change. Notice what we find here in, uh, in verse 21. It says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Now let me uh, examine this statement really quickly in regard to the hour. We've already made reference to the hour. It's mentioned for the very first time uh, when Jesus turns water into wine. He looks at Mary and he says, my hour has not yet come. You see, when Jesus looks at the Samaritan woman, he is making reference to the fact that when the hour comes, when the true and better hour, when Christ would lay down his life in our stead, everything is going to fundamentally change. No longer is it going to be a matter of location. And so the first thing that he does is he points out it's not on Mount Gerizim. It's not on Mount Gerizim. That's not the location of our worship. And this makes perfect sense, right? Because the actual place of worship ascribed in the Old Testament is Jerusalem. That's the place by which, that's the place where the sacrifices should be made. That's the places where the Jewish people would sing the song of ascents as they would rise up to go to the to Passover feast and festivals. All of those things took place there. And so for Jesus to look at her and say, it's not Mount Gerizim, it's not on this mountain that you're worship, it makes perfect sense. But the interesting statement is really not this one, it's the next one. As he continues in verse 21, it says, neither on this mountain, referring to Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. I would have loved if the disciples were present for this. They would have lost their mind. Jesus is saying, Jerusalem is not the place where we're going to worship any longer. We're not going to come to Jerusalem. We're not going to offer the sacrifices. We're not going to enjoy the feasts and the festivals. We're not going to do those things anymore. It's not about the location at all is ultimately what Jesus is saying. And so in regard to this, I think it's important and perhaps an application can be made that here you see preferences. Here you see preferences. Mount Gerizim, sure, the, the worship is corrupt, but even in Jerusalem, these things will fade away. But friends, I will confess to you, and with great certainty, the Jews continue to go to Jerusalem. Not only did the Jews continue to go to Jerusalem, the disciples would go, but they would go for the purpose of evangelism. There would be people who still clung to the old things. They held very tightly to them because they were comfortable. They were something that they had known. And I guarantee you that since not every Samaritan in that village came to saving faith in Christ that day, there would be people who would still climb the mountain to go to Mount Gerizim to worship when there was a better way provided. Friends, we should be, uh, to to the best of our ability, we should pay very close attention to the things that we cling to that are not biblical, that are not actually found in the scripture. And so you see the Lord look at these things. He says, it's not a matter of location. An hour is coming when everything is going to change. And then he continues in verse 22 and it says, this you worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is from the jews notice this the samaritans are worshiping in ignorance absolute ignorance matthew henry said so far from being the mother of worship ignorance is its murderer we have this culture where we think we can love the lord with our heart we can love the lord with our actions but our mind, whatever. 
the Lord did not redeem the whole man to have him live in ignorance and in his ignorance worship inappropriately. Ignorance is the murder, the, the slaughter, I should say, of worship. And yet we have saints who say for the sake of, of, of perhaps not becoming too religious, they say, I don't want the doctrine, I don't want those things, I just want Jesus. But friends, that, you can't make that statement apart from having some doctrinal belief. We, if we desire to worship rightly, we must be people who look into the scriptures and grow in intellect. And what ultimately has happened here is the Samaritans, in light of the fact that they've rejected the vast majority of the Old Testament, they don't worship rightly. God has prescribed the means by which they can worship, and they have rejected it as a whole. They've thrown it out. I think this is an interesting story. I, my, uh, at my home church, I, started, I was saved under a, a pastor, and he came back, and I was talking with him for a while, and he became a church planter. And one of the things he said is he was planting a church in this really grunge, like, and I'm referring to like the music grunge. I don't know if that's still a genre, um, but, but just like this rock music. And at the church that he was serving, that he was planting, they had a mosh pit one Sunday morning. A mosh pit. You know what a mosh pit is? Like you jump around and you push each other around and you're like, I'll do this for Jesus. I, uh, you know, and the reason this is interesting is because should, we have, should they have gone to the scriptures, they would have understood that God is a God of order. And jumping around in a mosh pit is not something you should do on a Sunday morning. Ignorance absolutely is the murderer of genuine worship. And so what the Samaritans are doing here, Jesus is looking at them and he's saying, you are worshiping in ignorance. You are worshiping what you do not know. And not only are they worshiping in ignorance, they don't actually know that which they worship. They're saying they ascribe value and infinite worth to God, but they do not serve the God of the scriptures. They've corrupted the Old Testament altogether by introducing these pagan concepts, and the God they serve is actually not the God of the Old Testament at all. Instead, it's some idol they've crafted for themselves. It's important for us to actually have the full revelation of God and use it in our daily worship. And so when Jesus makes this statement, he looks at the Samaritans first, he says, you're worshiping in ignorance. And then immediately following that, probably the nicest thing that Jesus ever said about the Jewish culture in that day, he says this, we worship what we know. We worship what we know. Friends, for us to worship rightly, we must know what we worship. We must know who we worship. Consider with me for just a moment, should we come to worship on a Sunday morning or perhaps even consider the individual who woke up this morning, they got dressed just as we did, they gathered their children up, they got in the vehicle, they're on their way to a Sunday morning service and they're there and they're worshiping the, the same God perhaps that we would, if we would walk in on a Sunday morning, we would assume that they were worshiping the same God. But you find out as the service continues that they believe in a God that is actually was at one point a man. He was a man, and because he was good and perfectly moral, he became a god. Elohim is what they would call him. We don't worship the same God. Friends, that happened this morning. That happened this morning. They gathered up their children, and they took them to the Mormon temple. We must look to the revelation of God that we might understand who we worship, and in light of that, that we might worship rightly. And so we see very clearly that it is... Jesus saying to them, we are worshiping rightly because we are looking at and honoring and revering the completeness of revelation that we have in the Old Testament. And then Jesus makes this statement in verse 22, and this is the hour that he's making reference to. It says, salvation is from the Jews. He is ultimately looking at the Samaritan people and saying, the hour that is coming, as he's having this conversation with this woman, he's saying, the hour that you've been looking forward to, it is literally sitting right in front of you. Salvation is from the Jews. He is, she is looking at him. 
And you have to consider the perspective that she has in this moment. She's looking at who she assumes to be a prophet, just a prophet. She's having a conversation with him. She's expecting him to perhaps answer a question or get into a theological debate. And he looks at her and says, salvation is from the Jews. I wonder if in this moment her wills began to turn as this Jewish man is having this conversation with her. And especially as we look into verse 23, where he makes a point to say the hour is coming when everything is going to fundamentally change. He begins to break apart his first statement that we find in verse 21. So in verse 23, it says this, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Well, what is this hour? I love what D.A. Carson writes in regard to this. He says this, This oxymoron is a powerful way of asserting not only that the period of worship in spirit and truth is about to come and awaits only in the dawning of the hour, in particular Jesus' death, resurrection, exaltation, but also that this that this ministry, that this period of time, this period of true worship is already proliptically present in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ before the cross. He goes on to say this. This worship can take place only in and through him. He is the true temple. He is the resurrection and the life. The passion and exaltation of Jesus constitutes the turning point upon which the gift of the Holy Spirit depends. But that salvation historical turning point is possible only because of who Jesus is. Precisely for that reason, the hour is not only coming, but also has now come. It is in this statement where Jesus says, the hour is coming, but is here. And I would like to point out to you the means by which we worship. We, we look at this statement and we assume that it is in regard to some theological truth. And though we see that to be the case in the next passage, but in this one, friends, Christ is the truth. The means by which we enter into worship is only through the finished work of Christ. I need you to understand that should you come to understand the Father apart from Christ, you have not understood the Father at all. For it is only in Christ, who is the perfect revelation of the Father, that we can actually know him. The, uh, John chapter 1 says he is the exegete of the Father. He is the one making clear who the Father is. And friends, if the intention of the soul is to worship the Father, you cannot do so apart from the revelation of Christ. Secondly, you cannot do so except for through Christ. It is only through Jesus that we have the ability to enter into the throne room of grace. Perhaps you've noticed in my prayers, I always end them with, it is in his name and through his precious blood we pray. Friends, there is no other means of entry to worship. It is only through the finished work of Christ that a saint can make his way with confidence into the throne of grace. Should you attempt to walk in by any other means, you will be quickly removed. Can you imagine? Perhaps not here below, but as you would go to that day of judgment, should you place anything before the Father to say, Lord, let me in. Should you offer him your fleshly deeds? Should you offer him how righteous you think you actually are? On that day, you will experience what it means to be cast out. We should be reminded of that here below. If we desire to worship the Father here on the earth, we should do so the same way that we will gain entrance into heaven. It is through the finished work of Christ who accurately and perfectly revealed the Father who fulfilled all righteousness and gave it to us, imputed it to us, to our account that we might actually gain entry and be welcomed, not as a servant, but as a son. It is through Christ. Christ is the truth that we find him making reference to by worshiping in 
spirit and in truth. Secondly, it is Christ who gives the spirit. All throughout the beginnings of John, we see this phrase, it is the Christ who gives the spirit without measure. The whole purpose of the narrative that we find when John the Baptist is proclaiming these things, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The reason he's proclaiming these things is because he knows that that one, the one the dove descended on, the spirit descended on, is the one who is able to give the spirit without measure. Friends, apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we do not have the ability to worship God. We don't. And, and it's very important for, me to, for, for you to understand that. That means, for, th- for instance, this morning, should you have come in and sang these beautiful songs and you think to yourself, I'm praising the Lord. If you do not have the Holy Spirit of God, you are singing to the ceiling. Because it is impossible to please God should you be in the flesh. That's not even, that, that's straight from Scripture. The mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God. Far past that, even Romans chapter 14 says, everything that is not of faith is sin. Can you imagine even walking into the throne room of grace again and saying, Lord, listen to all the songs that I sang. And he said, you didn't worship me. You offered your self-righteousness. Because, friends, every religious culture, every, uh, every externally religious person, all they think about is how I can contribute something to my salvation. And they think, should they come on a Sunday morning and sing incredibly beautiful songs to the Lord, that that is something that might attribute, uh, that they might give to God as a means that he might let us in. Friends, it is Christ who gives the Spirit. That is the prerequisite for worship. Should we not be made alive in the Spirit by the agent of regeneration, the Holy Spirit of God, then we have nothing to worship with. We are contrary to God, completely and totally contrary to him. We will not be allowed entrance. The beauty is that God is seeking such people to worship him. People that would worship in spirit and in truth. And what's very interesting about this is it is its own illustration. He is looking at the Samaritan woman at the well. And can you imagine, just consider for a moment this. He, he's, he's, he's had the conversation with Nicodemus. We know that Nicodemus ends up coming to the Lord But it is in this very unique conversation where he looks at one who he should never be having a conversation with. And he is illustrating in and of itself that it does not matter your background. It does not matter how sinful or wretched you think yourself to be because honestly you're worse anyway. He looks at them and says, you are one that will worship in spirit and in truth. We see her life fundamentally change. And you see her go into the village and proclaim these great truths. And, And the beauty of this is it does not matter your wretchedness and your wickedness. It is God who gives the spirit without measure. It is through Christ and through Christ alone that we have the ability to worship. That means that the best of us, which by the way is still totally depraved, and the worst of us, by God's grace and through the finished work of Christ, can enter into that throne room and never be cast out should our plea be the blood of Christ. And so the hour has come. Now, what does true worship look like? And what I'd like to do is to some degree develop... to some degree, develop what it looks like practically. So um, what you have in this statement, you have in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And then in verse 24, you have a reiteration of the statement. The very first thing he identifies is who God is. So the very first thing we need to understand about true and genuine worship is that its object is God. Um, One of our core values here at Mercy Hill is authentic worship. Um, The reason our worship should be authentic is first and foremost that the object of our worship is correct. We actually are worshiping the God of the scriptures. And I bring this up to say, it goes back to what we were talking about in regard to the Samaritans living and worshiping in ignorance. 
I do not want to know how many will stand before God on the day of judgment and, he, and they will profess the way that they worshipped him. And he will say, you worshipped an idol. It is in our, our southern religious culture that idols that come in the appearance of the God of the Bible need more so than anything else to be smashed. There are people that presume on the riches of his kindness that he'll gloss over their sin. There are people that are convinced that not only is, is God the Father, but they would reject the deity of Christ. Friends, I would like to point out to you, if Christ not be God, then we are all idolaters. But instead what we find is Jesus is actually and fully true God and true man, and we ascribe to him infinite worship. But should you reject the deity of Christ, then you yourself are an idolater. You are worshiping a creature, something that was created. He is not worthy of your worship. But if we worship the God of the Scriptures rightly, we worship the true God as revealed in Scripture. That means we gladly bow on our faces before everything that is revealed in the holy word of God. For it is indeed the infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Its object is God. True and genuine worship, its object is God who is spirit and apart from us being made alive in the spirit, it would be impossible for us to worship, which leads us into the second point, is empowered by the spirit of God. Friends, I would like to uh, confess to you that very often on Sunday morning, I wake up and we come and we set up and I'll tell you that I am physically exhausted by the time that I stand here, especially as we sing and I rejoice in singing together with you. But I'll be honest, a lot of times I pause and just, and just recuperate. But yet there is something in me that entices me to worship. It is not my flesh. My flesh says go home. My flesh says I've earned a break. But the Spirit of God in its work in my heart gives me a great affection for Jesus. And I know that's what it does in the saint as well. It is spirit empowered for apart from the Holy Spirit of God empowering your worship, you will find yourself, your, 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 your fleshly self saying, I will never ascribe value to him. I am valuable. That we would say in that song, why should I gain from his reward? We would quickly in our flesh say, but what about my labor? Where's my reward? You see, it is spirit-empowered because by the Spirit, He leads us into all truth. By the Spirit, He puts to death the misdeeds of the flesh by the Spirit. And friends, if we could not list all the ways that the Holy Spirit of God empowers us for the Christian life, one of which is actually giving us the ability to ascribe infinite value to God, to see Him with eyes that, that apart from the Holy Spirit's illumination, we would simply look at a man on a cross. So we come and worship is first and foremost, the object is God. Secondly, it is spirit empowered. Lastly, it is in line with revelation. It is in spirit and in truth. The reason, for instance, I'll bring this up, and I actually asked Drew to do this as a living illustration. Thanks, Drew. Um, in the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, perhaps you noticed there's a line changed. The line goes, um, the father turns his face away. Now let me tell you why I have major issues with that. It's because it is completely contrary to the revelation of Scripture. Completely contrary. Now, I know that traditionally we've got probably some people's gears grinding here, so let me explain rather quickly. First and foremost, we serve the Trinitarian God. He is immutable, He is unchangeable, and there is no means of breaking the fellowship within the Trinity. Should God have turned his face away, then what you would have is a fundamental change in the Trinity. Friends, if there's a fundamental change in the Trinity, then ultimately what we have is there's genuinely no hope for salvation because the salvation of the saint is done in a Trinitarian fashion. It's completely and totally impossible. Not only that, the God of the Scriptures has lied because he says he does not change. 
He's changed. Something has fundamentally changed in the Godhead. Not only that, but what Jesus is saying when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is normally what people cite in regard to the the, the turning of the Father away from the Son is actually a quotation. If I made the statement this morning and said, "Um, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. What's your first thought? The song, right? It's, It's an understood In Jewish culture, should you cite the first phrase of a psalm, you are actually making reference to the entire psalm. Should you read Psalm 22 in its entirety, you will discover that at the very end of that psalm, it explicitly says that you have not abhorred the affliction of your afflicted one, nor have you hid your face from him. It is in contradiction to the scriptures, and that's why we every so often do change a lyric. Because I want to be in line with what we find in the scriptures. So we worship in spirit and in truth in what is in line with revelation. And so I use that as an illustration to say this. It's important that we sing and that we do things that are in line with the Holy Scriptures. That's the reason that we can be from time to time finicky in regard to our song choice. We want to make sure that we are worshiping in spirit and in truth. There is nothing more detrimental than attempting to preach the truth of God's word and having something that this congregation has just sung that is in complete contradiction to what is preached. It's foolishness. And so my my prayer is that we understand that when we worship, we want to worship in line with revelation. We want to worship accurately. We want to worship in spirit and in truth. I would carry this over not not only to the song that we sing, but also to the way that we live. There are things that God has prescribed in his word by which we are to worship in our daily lives that should we contradict them, we are not worshiping in truth. I would give you perhaps the um, illustration of the family. We live in a day where the family is under constant attack and the world is arguing that you should change the way that you live based upon the culture. We will bow to what scripture says and should we desire to worship him in our lives, that means men, you are to be the leaders of your home. Should you throw that out of the window, then you are rejecting the authority of God's word and you will not worship rightly in your home. The exact same way that I would argue for women. God has prescribed a means by which you are to operate in the family, that you are to be a grand representative of the church, submitting to the loving affection of your husband that he might lead you faithfully. You see, it is in line with revelation that we must worship. Now, I would like to add this last part because this is really interesting. Uh, The first sermon that we did in regard to this, we made reference to Jesus saying he must go through Samaria. And this is the divine day. It means that it is a requirement. It is something that must be done. In the exact same way, when you look at verse 24, you'll discover God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It is that same divine day. The saint must worship. They will worship rightly. They will worship in line with Scripture. There is nothing that can stop the saint's tongue. How can we say we know the Lord and not gladly sing His praises? How can we say we bow to the truth of God's Word and not live our lives in line with the revelation of the Holy Scriptures? You see, the saint must worship. It is a requirement of the soul. It is a command of the Father. And it is something that will actually happen. It's necessary for us to understand this. The saint's worship is not something that might happen. It will happen. It is a part of being rescued and redeemed by God. It does something in you that by the Spirit of God, it draws you to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so I would like this morning, before we continue to wrap this whole section up real quickly, 
throughout the entirety of this passage in, uh, from, from the beginning of John 4 all the way to the end of this particular section, all the way to verse 45, there is a common theme. And the common theme is what Jesus has to offer is better. What Jesus has to offer is better. He comes under the authority of the Messiah. He mentions this in verse 25 and 26. He looks at the woman, and the, or the woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. If anyone would argue that Jesus never claimed to be God, friends, this is a great place to point them because the Old Testament makes it abundantly clear that the promised Messiah is divine. Not only that, but you see in this conversation that Jesus offers three things. The first thing that he offers is living water. And the way that he does this is he deconstructs her whole worldview and says what the Holy Spirit of God has to offer is infinitely better than what you will draw from this well. Secondly, he offers her better and true worship. It is not a matter of location. It is not a matter of preference. It is simply bowing to the authority of Scripture. And through the finished work of Christ, we can worship in spirit and in truth regardless of location. Lastly, he offers us better food. The better food that he has is obedience. That by God's grace, we can walk in obedience to him. And that in and of itself is its own reward. Jesus invites us into his labor. Friends, my prayer is, as we conclude this passage, is that we would understand that as we look at this whole thing, we would understand that Jesus has something better to offer, infinitely better, not minorly better, not a little better tasting water, not slightly more satisfying food, not worship that does something a little bit different. Instead, what he offers us is is, is tastes of eternity. I love the song, Foretaste of Glory Divine. Each and every one of these things are just that being perfectly sustained by the Spirit here below, we will find perfect and and infinite sustaining power from God in eternity. As we worship here below in spirit and in truth, it is simply a reflection of the worship that we will have above. Not only that, but the obedience here, the food and the fruit that's produced from it by our obedience, we will taste an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading in heaven for us. Christ's offers are better. And my prayer is for you, saint, this morning, that you would taste those things and see them and find them infinitely more valuable than anything that would be offered here below. And for those of you who do not know the Lord, I pray that you would taste the futility of everything that you're doing. That as you bite into the food this world has to offer you, that it would quickly turn to worms in your mouth. That as you taste water, that, it would, that you would find that it is simply salt water, that you will find yourself dehydrated rather quickly and in need of something more. And as you attempt to worship everything that you find here below, that you would find that it is infinitely trash compared to the infinite value of Christ. So my prayer for you this morning is that above all, we would ascribe infinite value and worth to the one who has given us the privilege and ability to enter into the throne room of grace and say, all glory be to Christ.